The following presentation is brought to you through the power of science. Shiny. Welcome to Generations Geek, a family-friendly celebration of geekdom by father-daughter holograms. I'm science fiction writer Scott Pearson, and I'm joined, as always, by my daughter. Hello. And we are two generations of geek. This is episode 34, Voyager. It's been 20 years already, and we'll be talking about the 20th anniversary of Star Trek Voyager with New York Times bestselling author Kirsten Beyer. Kirsten has written a bunch of Voyager novels, and since 2009 has been continuing the adventures of the Voyager crew after the final episode of the series. But first, a reminder to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and email us at thegeeks at generationsgeek.com. Plus, you can find handy links to all our episodes at generationsgeek.com. Now, on with the show. Kirsten Beyer, welcome to Generations Geek. Hello! (laughs) (laughs) So happy to have you on the show. I'm so glad we finally got to do this. Yes, because... Can you believe it's been 20 years? Since I was born? Uh, <laughs> well, that too, but since Voyager. Oh, uh, no. I was born. No. The Almost. 20th anniversary. You were born 20 years? You're, you're 20? You were born 20 no. years? No. <laughs> I'll be 18 in December, though. Oh, it's getting nice. close. So... Almost happy birthday. Thank you. Isn't that trippy? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. <it> is. <laughs> You're going to freak out. <laughs> so Voyager. Yeah. Let's talk about the show first. Okay. And then after that, we can talk a little bit about, I think you've done a few books on the subject. One or two. <laughs> <laughs> I've lost count at this point. I always have to use my fingers now. I'm like, wait a minute. Yeah. That one, that one, that one. <laughs> so you and I are old school because we watched it when it was originally broadcast so week after week month after month we invested seven years yeah we did into that experience yep the kid of I course i watched it um in three months yeah so that's oh, a whole a different thing that had to be really interesting i mean i have since binge watched it a few times um just when i was prepping for certain projects Sometimes I'll watch just specific seasons or specific episodes, but once or twice I've gone back and watched the whole thing from start to finish. Like I did that before Full Circle. I I actually find I enjoy it more when I'm watching them all right back to back. I mean, some of the... Go ahead. I really love watching, like when I haven't... Because I'd seen Voyager before, not anywhere close to all of it, but I really love watching new shows, like being able to just binge it all. Because you can understand, I don't know, just I like, I'm really forgetful. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so, like, I'll be watching a show, and it'll, you know, it'll go the summer with no episodes, and then we get back, and I'm like, who's, what's your name? What's, why are you angry? Like, I don't, <laughs> I can't do it. And so, yeah. when I can yeah. just go on Netflix and be like, all right, seven seasons, time <laughs> yeah. to go, then it's yep. just like, it's a lot better of an experience. It is. It is. I've read things that say it's bad for us somehow, like they're doing studies now on binge-watching stuff, and they're saying... I don't know why, but... I think it depends on the show. I think some shows lend themselves more to it. Other shows, not as much. I mean, an interesting thing about a show like Voyager, when a key aspect of the plot is that they're they're lost and, and trying to get home, mm-hmm. when, you, when you sort of experience it in real time, so to speak, 
Mm -hmm. you you have that bigger sense of how yeah. long they've been trying to get back. Mm -hmm. when, you, when you binge it, of course, it just zooms by. Mm -hmm. So the, they are two very different experiences. Mm -hmm. um, also, though, my friends can never figure out how I binge TV so quickly. And it's because, like, you don't just sit in one place and watch it. Like, you go on your computer or your laptop or your iPad and you, like, do your chores. Like, I do laundry <laughs> and, like, I fold, like, you do other stuff. <laughs> Yep. While you're watching it, I don't just sit in one place for however many hours that seven yep. seasons would have been. Like you get different things out of it when you're when you're watching it that yeah. way. Like Let's... I get character voices more clearly, you know, because that's almost all you've got. Oh, yeah. You're not yeah. glued yeah. to the screen. Let's try to go back and try to dredge up our first impressions. When, okay. we, when we sat down that that first night and watched the pilot. What what did you think? Well, let me ask you something before I answer that question. Sure. When you sat down to watch Voyager that night, the mm -hmm. premiere, what other Star Trek had you seen? Were you like fully, <laughs> you know, like absolutely fluent in the original series, the animated series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, and Voyager was next? Yes. Okay. Because that a, wasn't me. Ah, interesting. Yes. I'm a uh, hardcore, long-term, immersive kind of person. I have seen every episode uh, the original series, I've seen the episodes over and over and over and over again during those years of syndication when there was nothing else, no other right. Star Treks. Right. Um, then starting with Next Generation, I didn't necessarily watch every episode over and over like during repeats or, or anything, but I watched it every week. I re read all the books. Um, so when I sat down to, for Voyager, it was within that context that I had seen everything that was available up to that point okay so and, i hadn't okay and so was voyager your introduction to star trek a bit or, or not at all no okay but so i had seen i had watched as a young child so 20 years ago <laughs> the um the original series uh not in the um first run because i wasn't born but um it would have been in the mid seventies, whatever they were doing in syndication. Yep. Uh, it would have been on in the afternoons, like after school on some channel that my brother and I, uh, basically what it came down to was star Trek was one of the only shows that my older brother and I could agree to watch. And if we couldn't agree on something, we lost television privileges. So this was very, very important. <laughs> um, so I sort of fell into it because he really liked it. And I, I liked it. I mean, I'm not sure I followed everything that was going on, but it was cool enough. And then there was a long period where I didn't uh, have any Star Trek in my life, but I was, it was the summer I turned 16, I spent at um, Southeastern Oklahoma State University at the Oklahoma Shakespearean Festival. I was working the, the festival for the summer. And um, for reasons passing understanding, very early in the summer, uh, one of the guys who worked in the costume shop with me set up a thing where in the evenings they were running Star Trek every night and at like 11 o'clock at night we would all go to his room for an hour and watch the show and drink a lot which I wasn't supposed to be doing but you know um yeah. so uh so then I got sort of got reintroduced to it as a slightly older person was like wow this stuff is actually really good you know like I I wasn't enjoying it um you know under pressure I was just enjoying it and then when Next Generation came along I was late to the party it came out when I was in school. And so um, probably just starting graduate school now. Well, yeah, in that time, end of college, early graduate school. Yep. And there was like no time to watch 
television at that point in time. And, you know, we didn't have really VCRs yet that you could consistently record stuff and catch it later. I mean, that just wasn't part of our lives. So if you, if you happen to see it, you happen to see it. So I didn't really get into Next Generation until I was actually out of graduate school. And what would happen is I would come home and at the time of day, I would usually work out. It was on television. So I would exercise while watching it. And so I never saw it in order, but you know, I saw enough of it to certainly get the gist of who all the characters were and kind of how this worked. And I really enjoyed it. I mean, it was a lot of fun. Um, and then Deep Space Nine started when I had started when I was in graduate school and I missed that completely. I mean, I probably saw like one or two episodes and that was it. It was just, there was no bandwidth for Star Trek at that point. Um, so cut to Voyager's premiere. I had been out of graduate school for like a year or almost a year and had just gotten married that summer before. And my husband had the nerve to get himself cast in a play that I was not cast in. <laughs> and so I was alone for several nights uh, with not a whole lot to do. But the thing that interested me most about Voyager was the fact that I actually knew some folks who were working on the show. There was a lady named Kim Friedman who had directed us at UCLA in some of our acting for the camera courses. Mm -hmm. And she, I had already said she was directing some of the first few episodes of Voyager. And um, there were a number of actors who David had worked with who had actually read for the show, read for the pilot as well. And some of them actually ended up appearing later in the, in the series, which was interesting. Um, so, so I had a little, it was more like a behind the scenes kind of thing for me. Mm -hmm. I was watching it just to watch these people work not so much because I planned to become immersed in the world of Star Trek and Voyager for the rest of my life, which is what happened, but that wasn't the plan. <laughs> so, so that night when I sat down to watch it, I remember loving Kate Mulgrew. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember thinking that the premise for the show was awesome. That mm -hmm. this idea that we were going to have absolutely no frame of reference in terms of past aliens and species and stuff, and that we were just going to be, it was going to be, Every week was anything can happen week yeah. um, was just thrilling. Um, and I thought, you know, it, it seemed to me at the time to be updated enough in the sense that it did feel relevant to whatever was happening in the world at the time. I didn't feel like I was watching some throwback to, you know, because I get that sense a lot. I, there's a lot I have to forgive when I watch the original series. I still love it, but it's very much a product of its time. Mm -hmm. And now, of course, Voyager is too. But that night, it seemed to be perfectly, you know, current. Um, I hadn't paid a lot of attention to any controversy around the idea of a woman being captain. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I would have even known enough at the time to know why that was such a huge deal. I mean, it felt like we had seen female captains just not leading a show in other episodes of things. So, you know, yeah. um, and without the, I mean, that was just at the beginning of the internet, right? So, um, over the years that Voyager ran, you know, that's also when I sort of came to being able to go online and, you know, find websites where other people were talking about Voyager. And that really enhanced my enjoyment of the experience tremendously um, because it was like I had real time access to other folks who cared about this, which in my daily life is not the case. I mean, <laughs> yeah. apart from my older brother, you know, the vast majority of my friends and family don't really care about Star Trek. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I just I remember thinking, well, I'm definitely going to keep watching this, yeah. you know. Yeah, I came, I came to it eagerly awaiting the next incarnation of Star Trek as a person mm -hmm. who had watched everything. I thought it was a great idea for the new show. Uh, Next Generation had been essentially just the updating of the original series. 
And mm -hmm. then Deep Space Nine did the great thing of being on a space station and uh, allowed them to tell very uh, layered uh, stories because they were in that location permanently. Mm -hmm. And then Voyager came up with a, you know, a new idea. It's like, okay, now let's throw them out someplace, mm -hmm. someplace new. It was a great progression of ideas for mm -hmm. the, the, uh, the various stories. And I, I liked it right from the get-go. And mm -hmm. I also don't think I was entirely aware of how many people were freaking out about the female captain thing. Like you, it was just like, how is this even a thing? Right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> right, really? And, uh, <laughs> and Kate Mulgrew did so much to hold that show together because I think that there was some erratic writing. Uh-huh. <laughs> of her character and yet i think in spite of that that she <laughs> <Go> was <laughs> that she was able to maintain a believable arc she yeah she through really those did. you know and made yeah. it seem more like a uh, multifaceted character uh than you know a schizophrenic uh, writing staff that was trying to find <laughs> yeah you know what to do yeah, it wasn't really until I went back and started studying the show that I got really frustrated with the inconsistencies in her character. The first time watching it through, I was just right there along with them, for the most part. I mean, there were other issues, but in terms of Janeway's yeah. character, I was just sort of going with the flow. Yeah. Uh, well, that's but now the thing that I've about watching back, it, the episode so far apart, is that like when I was binging it, it, it was like suddenly the doctor was throwing himself on his knees and professing his love to Seven. And I was right. like, hold on a <laughs> yeah. second. And then nothing, nothing. Yeah. And I was yeah. just like dying. So, yeah, I didn't think of that. So, yeah, when there's when there's things that are You a little, notice it more. Those little glitches. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what was your, uh, do you remember what your first thoughts were when you watched the, the first episode? First, when I binged it that summer... I just, I just kept getting these really weird, like, foggy memories like I had seen it before because we used to watch it all the time when I was little. I had shown I, yeah, a handful I of episodes. I didn't remember, like, but I really liked it, and I didn't remember enough of it to, like, actually remember the plot, but I remember, the, like, the characters and their voices. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it was, like, really, like, I, I felt like I had watched it before. It felt like I knew them, but I didn't know. Like, it was, like, a whole yeah. new experience. Mm. So that, that was, like, most of that summer for me it was just like this weird like nostalgia and what did you <laughs> think of uh captain janeway i loved her yeah i mean it's it's so great to have a female captain and i don't like as far as like the issues with her character like she has no more issues than any of the male captains <laughs> this is true frankly yeah. like and let's go back and look at kirk like, <laughs> and watch him squeeze some girl in green paint like an accordion. <laughs> and you know what's funny is because I've actually recently re, re binged the original series, um, which I hadn't done in a long, long time. And I did that in the last probably seven or eight months. And there are only a handful of times where Kirk is actually genuinely romantically interested in someone. The vast majority of the times, he's actually using his charisma or whatever to try to either get information from somebody or try to get out of a problem that they're solving um it's really and that in a way almost makes it more uncomfortable because there's a part of me that's like wow <laughs> that was okay okay <laughs> you know 
Like, I find that more offensive than had he just genuinely been into them. Yeah. You know? Uh, when you mentioned having, how great it was having a female captain, one of the things that struck me in reflecting back upon the show as a whole, especially after Seven was introduced She's to like the show. My favorite. Um, my fave. We have to ignore the ridiculous skin tight outfit. But other than that, the relationship between Janeway and Seven of Nine yeah. is really one of the best, like most complicated, layered female friendships yep. on TV. And at the time, I think it was probably really quite rare to have two really strong female characters like that. Mm-hmm. And they could they could disagree, they could fight, they could be angry, they would come back to that core friendship that you saw uh, develop from the beginning, from Seven being Borg, being very much the enemy, and, and see that develop. And, uh, boy, that's, that's, that's a rarity even on television to this day. I agree. There are very few shows that feature two women. And, and frankly, I mean, I throw Volana into that mix as well. You know, three incredibly strong women. Yeah. Um, solving problems together. And at the beginning, before Balana is officially the chief engineer, and she's like fighting for it, kind mm-hmm. of. Yep. That like that plot line is just like. Mm. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there was a dumb episode in a lot of ways. Yeah. But <laughs> that moment when the two of them just started talking, you know, geek to one another, yes. and absolutely yes. understood each other, and you were like, oh yeah, they're gonna totally get along. That's awesome. <laughs> it was, and they, you know, yeah. they. And they... I still, I mean, I still like it when Balana punches people in the face. <laughs> Yeah. Like, I like it when some guy's just, like, a little bit mean to her, and she's like, you know what? <laughs> yeah. You can't even go that far. Nope. She was one character where they really took dramatic advantage of the McKee Starfleet issue. Yeah. And for various, re- you know, behind-the-scenes reasons, they just let that go overall way too quickly. Mm-hmm. And just suddenly everyone was happy and getting along together. Yeah, they could have they could have gotten a lot more drama yeah. and a well, lot I, more tension. I believe the original plan mm-hmm. was to milk that out, but mm-hmm. but various producers or the network or whatever, the decision came down, no, we want to get They people. still got a lot of tension out of it though. And yeah, and it came back now and then with Seska and that sort of thing. But Oh God. But uh <laughs> <laughs> like it's like know, she's yeah. like I'm going to make a weird Walking Dead analogy. She's like <laughs> the governor, except for I'm not afraid of her. I just want to punch her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like when the governor's on screen, I'm like, I'm like, I hate you. But also like, I'm a little bit scared. Yeah. And when Seska's on screen, I'm just like, oh, let's, oh, let's go. Let's this yeah. Sunday at the Thunderdome. <laughs> yeah. Perhaps we should have a little aside here. We've been talking about the... Uh, strong female characters. Maybe mm-hmm. we do have to just sadly mention Kess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh my god. As the character <laughs> that they just n- never seem to get a handle on. They they yeah. I think they kind of chickened out from sticking to the premise of the character not having a long life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then they jettisoned the Kess and Neelix love story mm-hmm. just out of nowhere. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was so bizarre. And then and then just never really figured out what they were doing with her. Plus, like half of Kess's episodes are them just like cutting to her walking down a corridor and then zooming in on her face and having her go, ah, <laughs> right, <laughs> like so, like fingers of the temple. Right? <laughs> it's really too bad because there was a good character and a good story to be done there, and it was largely fumbled. Uh, yeah, I I tend to agree. I mean, I think part of it. And in some ways, you have the same issue with Seven of Nine, although um, not quite as much. There's something strange about the hard to wrap your brain around the idea of this two-year-old who's also an adult. Yeah. I mean, we get that she lives seven. Like, you know, you can do it intellectually and be like, oh, that's fine. But I think the issue with the Neelix relationship, and this has nothing to do with Neelix, because I like his character a lot more than most people do. Um, There was just sort of a creepy vibe almost from the beginning um, with her and yeah, him. Yeah, because he I acts thought. like he acts like old, mm-hmm. like a lot mm-hmm. older than she does. Yeah. So when they're yeah. together, it's 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 hard. Like, I remember this. It's it's weird to see them actually as a romantic couple. Like, whenever yeah. they're acting like that, it's kind of like, I just, yeah, it's a little off. Well, because she's not somebody who had this, like, sort of, even in two years, this sort of, like, full experience of the world and the universe and like consciously made a choice to enter into this relationship. And like, it felt like it was her agency leading her there. I mean, Mm -hmm. she was in this weird underground place with people who believed in the caretaker. And then she had the wherewithal to search for the truth of all of that and get herself to the surface where she's then immediately abused by these horrible caissons. So, so Neelix saving her and the crew saving her while absolutely the right thing to do and an admirable you know, act, action aren't necessarily the kinds of things that then lead you immediately to, oh, she's fine and she's fully ready to have a relationship. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. you think she probably needs time to process that. And so she, like, I, I felt more protective of her. And Neelix obviously did too. I mean, he never did anything, even in his moments where he was being very jealous and whatever. He never crossed any lines that made me concerned in any way. But there was just always this odd thing about it like well, okay. yeah, it's like does she know what a normal relationship is like no she can't possibly yeah uh, yeah that's very interesting i don't think i ever fully considered some of those ramifications so it makes that character even harder to wrap your head around well i mean i think had so they been I... willing to give her more time mm-hmm. we might have been able to see some of that organic growth and been able to be more accepting but it was just sort of like because there are so many strong characters on the series and because especially early on we're focusing on janeway and chakotay and you know, um, Tuvok and, you know, Tom Paris. I mean, there's, there's a lot going on. It's just like every once in a while we would get a Kess episode and it seemed like there were, uh, leaps and bounds between those things that we hadn't necessarily seen apart from her walking down the hall and grabbing her head from time to time. Yeah. Yeah. Especially, yeah. The episode that revealed that she and Neelix were no longer a couple. Yeah. It was just like this afterthought. Yeah. It was anticlimactic. It's like, no, the lengths they had gone to develop them as a couple, yeah. that should have been something that happened on screen. But instead, Definitely. we find out about it after the fact. I remember mm-hmm. when I watched an episode, I like I, th- I either called or emailed you. Like, you were, like, at work, and I, like, made <laughs> sure. I was like, Dad, are, like, are Cassidy like the thing? And he, and you were like, oh, you got to that episode. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. No, mm-hmm. that's, what, that's what they did. And I was like, are mm-hmm. you kidding? Mm-hmm. And yeah, there were a lot of choices, I mean, frankly, and that was one of the most obvious, where it felt like um, writers' or producers' decisions were being imposed on the characters, and as hard as the actors worked, there was no way they were going to be able to pull that off. You mentioned the Kazon. 
They're an interesting race. They're a nice antagonist for the crew. But unfortunately, they used them for at least that entire first season. Right. And maybe even into the second. It was as if the Kazon had a territory that that was one light year wide and a thousand light years long. Right. <laughs> that just right. happened to be pointed at Earth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. and so the the continuing to use them episode after episode after episode just got to be silly and and was at odds with the idea that they were just trying to make as much as possible a beeline toward earth because what the the what the premise really sets up it's the classic serial premise that you're gonna you know like it's like Banner on on uh, on the Incredible Hulk TV show. It's like you know every week he stops and gets entangled in someone else's problem and helps out some people, and then mm-hmm. sadly you know leaves at the end of the episode. It's yep. a it, you know it's something that's been it's it's a classic format, and they lost that a little bit with the recurrence of the Kazon, but but generally never... over the course of the series they you know, they got better at 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 uh, yeah having something different you know all the time. I never had an issue, like, watching it, I never thought about, like, their territory in my head. Like, like that was never an issue to me. Like, I just figured that, like, the way their space worked out with the other aliens or whatever that were around, that it was just, like, weird and curvy and messy and, like, other different, like, groups of Kazons had, like, different weird, curvy and messy, like... Yeah, and that's not... That's a reasonable assumption to make, and it might have been easier for you when you were watching it in a binge. It didn't seem like... So oh, yeah. long that it's like, it's oh not my like every gosh, week it's the case on again. You know. Yeah. I see that too. Well, I think I mean I had two issues with the case on. The first nobody could do anything about, which was that Maj Kala, who was the lead one, a guy named Anthony DeLongas, was my um one of my teachers at UCLA <laughs> in graduate school. <laughs> oh my god. So he um he, he actually taught us it was like a stage combat and um just sort of, it was a movement class, but it was, there was a lot of sword play and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. He was actually the guy, I mean, he's a fascinating guy and, a, and actually I think a wonderful actor. He's also the guy who taught Harrison Ford how to use the whip in the original <laughs> Indiana Jones movies. Oh, nice. I mean, this guy, yeah, he's like amazing. I've seen him do more recently. Um, David watches all the shows um, about like marksmanship and, and well, you know, like Survivor Man and all that kind of stuff. But like mm-hmm. there was a, there are, there are shows where they do, you know, extreme marksmanship and a lot of times he's on them you know hitting targets that are amazingly far away mm-hmm. it was like he's amazing um but i knew him so like color was never going to work for me <laughs> you know? yeah. it was just like hey tony you know <laughs> um what even? The thing is, i think that they i think that when they were establishing the case and they tried to set them up as the like 12 or 13 different tribes or something like that yeah there was probably this notion that there would be some sort of difference between the tribes. Like there would be distinctions among them. And had we met different kinds of Kazon along the way, it might've been more palatable. But mm-hmm. every time we saw them, it was like, oh great, we're going up against the cavemen again. Yeah. And you know, yeah. it, it, uh, that just never, you know, nor really did the idea that Seska could survive for more than five minutes with those guys. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I get that she's like an operative and she's trained to like make the most out of whatever she's got to deal with, but there's no way she chooses the case on over life on Voyager. I mean, that just, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I, like, I know they found her out and stuff, but she could have talked her way into a cushy job <laughs> on Voyager. 
at that point in time. I mean, if the if the folks who, you know, um, were part of Equinox ultimately landed somewhere on the lower decks, I am sure <laughs> they could have found yeah. a spot for Seska. I mean, but she does so. seem like kind of legitimately insane, though. Like I like she's walking the edge. Like the episode where she's like, "By the way, Chakotay, I'm pregnant with your child," and it's actually yeah. like the Kazan's kid. It's like, oh, <laughs> yeah, she was. Well, she was somebody. I mean, so what's interesting is that I watched mo- all of Voyager pretty much before I ever watched all of Deep Space Nine. So she really screwed up my understanding of the Cardassians a lot. I feel like I got her a lot better after I had watched Deep Space Nine. I was watching them concurrently as they were broadcast, and so. I never thought of that, but yeah, that Me would neither. be. Yeah. I, wa- well, cause I, I, watched, I watched all of DS9 before I watched all of Voyager. Yeah, you had binged DS9 yes. first. That's a recipe for disappointment right there. <laughs> <laughs> DS9 is, uh, wow. It's breathtaking. Should we do some favorite, least favorite kind of things? Yes. Okay. Okay, okay you... the episode where they think that Tom killed the alien because of his wife. Ex post facto? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> And they all have, like, like they don't have hair, but they have, like, these feathers, feathers. on them. Yeah. Oh, my God. I, that episode is a masterpiece. <laughs> so that's one of your faves. Yes. Uh, and what about and your... The episode, uh, wait, and oh, the episode where... Yeah, the episode okay. where Janeway and Chakotay are, like, six, so they have to ditch him on that planet. Mm-hmm. And they, like, build a little life, and she has, like, a little monkey friend, like, Chakotay, like, like makes her a tub out of nowhere. And she's, mm-hmm. like, taking baths in the woods. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. And then, mm-hmm. then they really kind of fumbled the uh, Janeway Chakotay thing. Yeah, too. and then that just went down the drain. <laughs> and then, and, and, and then <laughs> we don't talk about that. And then they yeah. made up the Chakotay Seven thing they out of so nowhere. Cute. Oh and, my god, know. I can't even talk mm-hmm. about that. But yeah. Kirsten fixed all that stuff. We can talk about that later. <laughs> um, it's all better now, I promise. Kirsten, do you have a standout favorite episode or two? Um, I think my my all time favorite is probably Living Witness. And oh, is that the one? Um, that was the one where the doctor, the doctor like episode. a backup version of the doctor. Yeah. So it makes no sense because if yep. we'd had backup versions of the doctor, I'm fairly certain we would have heard of that before that moment. <laughs> but okay. Um, so, but I'm going to forgive that part of it uh, because the rest of it is to me just as classic as Trek ever gets. I mean, that's just like the epitome of Trek for me. Um, this notion that this this 700 years later, these these people had this idea of what Voyager was that yeah. had absolutely nothing to do with the truth. And then the way he sort of is able to, you know, um, inform them about what really happened. And then his choice at the end to go on out on his own and look for them. Just, oh, oh, that's just that's it for me, man. <laughs> and you know what? Tim Russ directed that episode. Oh, and I I've never I mean, I always liked him. And I think I liked him a lot more than a lot of people did. I He does some extraordinary work. When you go back and watch those episodes back to back, because um, there's not, it's not even the Tuvok-centric episodes. It's all of the other ones where he's in the background. The care and the time that he takes um, in, in it, it's what he doesn't say. I mean, just anytime he's on screen, I'm drawn to him. Um, and that, so it didn't really surprise me when I sort of like came was was rewatching and came to that episode, it's like, oh, of course he directed that. Yeah, yeah. I I was quite fond of Tuvok. Tuvok uh, is like my second favorite Vulcan. Which is saying a lot. <laughs> Who's your third favorite Vulcan? Because we all know who the first is. <laughs> um, the episode where he's taking care of those little kids on that planet. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. Oh my I'm god, because you get to see like he's like because he's a father and you forget yeah. and you never see like Vulcans like parenting mm-hmm. and then two bucks are and he's like t- teaching them how to meditate and they're like and they love him. Mm-hmm. That is nice. Mm-hmm. So good. I'm trying to think of a favorite episode of mine. I'm at a slight disadvantage because you've both watched it much more frequently and much more recently than I have. Except for I, and when so, I went and I I paused in my rewatching and I didn't get up to where they they had Seven and Seven's like, I love her. She is a fabulous character. Um, so I'll, I'll just throw out a couple episodes that I remember. <clears throat> okay, wait, Q Jr. I Any episode of Q Jr. <laughs> is my favorite episode of Voyager. <laughs> Anyone. Any of the, she, what, two? Have you read The Eternal Tide? She has not. I what? Okay. Oh no, I haven't read. She has not started uh, digging. So she into still the... likes me. That's good. It's, <laughs> it's so into. Okay, the 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 wall of geekitude isn't up in our new house yet, but like people be like, oh, you haven't started reading Star Trek books, and it's like, oh, geez, I wonder. It's like there's an entire. I could spend my whole the, life reading all those books. The wall of geekitude refers to. At our previous house, I had an entire wall, seventy-eight linear feet of shelves, mm-hmm. that was all Star Trek. Uh, books, CDs, DVDs, mm-hmm. action figures, all Star Trek. Mm-hmm. We, I have not yet rebuilt the wall. So, mm-hmm. there, so there, at some point there will be the Wall of Geekitude 2.0, but there isn't. So for now, all of my voluminous Star Trek books are packed away in boxes in like, storage. I don't know how, like, not very many many people have experienced the Wall of Geekitude, but when, like, you're me and you didn't grow up watching Star Trek, I mean, I did grow up watching Star Trek. <laughs> you but, did, you But I didn't grow up, like, while it was on, and I didn't get a chance to have time yeah. to absorb all that. It's a lot to, to look at and be like, yeah. I should probably read all 600-some of those books. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, one of the episodes I remember, since you, we were mentioning how great Seven was... The episode where she is sort of reliving people that she assimilated. Mm-hmm. And so you, I mean, so Jerry Ryan really got to. Flex. Is that Infinite Regress? Or I can't the one remember with the, the title. Hmm. It's probably Infinite Regress. I, I can't remember which, which the title was. But so she really got to flex her acting muscles there and portray different people. It was really a stunning performance on her part. I mean, it's kind of a gimmicky episode, but she nailed it. Mm-hmm. Um, the Raven the, that that you mentioned that was good as well. I also remember um, what was the what was the psycho killer's name that was played by Brad Dourif? Oh, Suter. Suter. Oh, oh my. God. God, yeah. oh my God. That Wait, arc. the episode where he helps them? Is... Yeah. yeah. That yeah. was, you know, that that was this sort of subtle arc that developed, you know, it's like, so they realized here's this guy, he's kind of an anomaly, that he's, you know, kind of nutso. <laughs> yeah, kind of. And, and Tuvok puts in all this effort to help him, mm-hmm. and then they get into this horrible situation, and it's kind of like, well, you just got to let the dogs out, Suter. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and uh, 
and it's like, wow, that was really powerful. And, and he's and, almost like he's all better. He's, he's all better. He's and all now... better. And it, like you can see, like the I don't the guy. What, what did you say his name was? The Brad Dourif. Brad yeah. Dourif does such an Worm amazing tongue. job. Yes, he's such a good actor. He did such an such an amazing job of showing how much that broke him because mm-hmm. he was broken, right? Yeah. And then he's working and he's like so good and he meditates and he's like adorable. And he's like, all I want to do is like feel the light come into my soul. And then it's like, by the way, I just need you to murder some people. Just yeah. real quick, otherwise everyone's gonna die. So he he like sucks it up, and just like yeah. oh yeah. my god, like imagine yeah. going up to like a horrible like um elementary Sherlock Holmes, being like real quick, just like do some drugs, yeah. <laughs> otherwise everyone's gonna die. Like yeah, huh. yeah, those ethically murky areas that we ventured into from time to time. Yes, when they when they when they quote unquote kill um Tuvix. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh my gosh, so, any episode with the bored kids. So we <laughs> so we threw out some of our fave episodes there. Do we want to talk about least faves? We can. Or or we rather time skip do we that? have? <laughs> <laughs> we could talk about our least favorite. Let's do each I mean, do we, one. One? I don't know if I can think of one. I focus too much on like the good ones. That's all I remember is the good episodes until people start I, talking about it. Um I can't really, I, you know, I don't know if I can think of a, 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 a specific episode, but I can certainly think of some elements here and there that were of my least favorite. The, uh, the horrible hollow program that they used for a while, like, uh-huh. like, like the love boat. Yeah. <laughs> no, oh, the, no, not the bar, the, 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 the beach thing. The beach the, thing, yeah. where it was just like yeah. this transparent, uh, Mm-hmm. Ploy oh, yeah, to throw yeah. in, you know, people in bathing Scantily suits. Clad, yes. Oh, that was so awful. Every episode where that that came in, it would just like clunk. The episode would just come to a, a, a dead end there. Um, any episode where Seven shows any interest in Chakotay? <laughs> yeah, that story makes me so uncomfortable. That story arc was was uh, was literally forced. I'm like, please from, just get the, out of a, here. From a production standpoint, and uh, and although they, although particularly Jerry Ryan acted the bejeebers out of it, she did, she did, she still couldn't save the arc from from being ill conceived. But, but but she was fabulous. Not quite because I was watching the doctor mm-hmm. while she was watching. Chicago. And then I had my eyes. Oh, on them. poor. Poor doctor. Poor doctor. And let me tell you something. Never this goes, decided on a name. I, 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 someday, some, sometime if I get a chance to talk to uh, Robert Picardo in person. Oh my God. You'll I should bring ask this him up to because, sing a song? No, I, I wouldn't want to ask him, you know, as a doctor, <laughs> you're always having these troubles because, Kirsten, did you watch China Beach at all? No. So China Beach was a Vietnam show that he was in. Mm-hmm. And he was a doctor on the show, and he had this uh, horrible, long, unrequited love for um, Dana Delaney. Was mm-hmm. I can't remember the name of the the character. Mm-hmm. And then uh, he ends up as the doctor on Voyager, and, and he ends up in the same situation. Whenever the doctor sings, that's my favorite episode of Voyager. Oh, when he's got he a sings fabulous to voice. 
Uh, oh, if I ever meet him, I'm just gonna walk up and be like, "Two back, I understand," and see if he just starts. <laughs> you are a Vulcan man, just like, just like, and then just stare at him. And I'm just, you are a Vulcan, and then just stare. <laughs> That's how you get him. You don't finish the verse. Did uh, so? Did Kirsten? Did you want to throw out a least favorite episode? Yeah. So, um, my I think I think rock bottom for me. There's there's a couple. But the one I'm going to go ahead and give it to is uh, Demon. Um, only because there are so very many places where that show makes everybody look so stupid and that I cannot forgive them. Give me a little bit of the plot. I don't remember. So the that's titles. the one where we ran out of gas and we ha- ended up on this planet where um, there was a there was a, we thought it was a substance that was made of deuterium or contained deuterium. And oh, it turned out it was a life form, the silver yeah, blood. Yeah, and so yeah, they yeah, duplicated yeah. everybody on the ship and then mm-hmm. they left. Now it's almost worth it for course oblivion, which I thought was kind of breathtaking in its way. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, you know, I mean, <laughs> no, you just, it, there's a, there's, there's, there's all this time and energy spent talking about how, how nothing can survive on this planet. Apparently, except upholstery, because at one point <laughs> we got the back of a, of a shuttle wide open, and we're getting. I'm like, what the hell? What the hell? <laughs> I can't. I can't. Never mind the fact that we're four. In, we're like in the middle of season four, and now we're running out of gas. I mean, like there had to be a way to solve for that before, and there's just no way. There's I think no the way. first time I watched that episode was after you. Have you listened to Welcome to Night Vale? No. Okay. There's an episode of Welcome to Night Vale where, um, like, the radio announcer, the main character, Cecil, gets on the radio and he's like, he's kind of like, um, by the way, there's a double of everyone in town and you have to kill them, otherwise they're going to kill you. <laughs> so throughout the episode, he's going, kill your double. So when I watched that Voyager episode, it was after I had listened to that episode of Welcome to Night Vale. So I was just sitting there like, kill your double. <laughs> like, I was just out for blood. <laughs> Do we, so I didn't dislike it that much because I was in too much of a nightmare. Do we, do we want to mention uh, Janeway and Paris's salamander love? No. <laughs> no, we don't. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, that, it's like I said, it's a tough call. You know, that was a oh, threshold. Oh. Their conversation after. <laughs> yeah. It's, see, I actually really... Uh. <laughs> that was fine with me. <laughs> Why do you assume that you were the aggressor? Next. <laughs> that was good. That was a good line, but it just was so uncomfortable. And then she's like, it's fine. Like they're both like, oh, we'll just never talk about this again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We which, turned into animals which, and had babies. It's which fine. was the same thing the audience was yeah, saying. Yeah, we were like, we're cool with this arrangement. <laughs> we're never, never gonna happened. speak of this episode again. That just never happened. What about favorite characters? Do you wanna start this right now? Because I think it, you, you don't know what you're getting yourself into. <laughs> um because let me tell you q jr was in two episodes i might have and I, I i would i might have to go with uh with seven of nine i love her so much though too uh she was jerry ryan was so good and she thought i was cute when i was little and, and she did yes thanks to the I'm magic of uh Thanks to the magic of Twitter, Jerry Ryan had posted uh, something about blowing bubbles with her little girls or something, and I tweeted a picture of uh, little Ella blowing, blowing bubbles, and, uh, and Jerry Ryan said she was cute. 
Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love that. Okay, in no particular order, I'm ready for this question. In no particular order, <clears throat> seven of nine, mm-hmm. Tuva, okay. Icheb, okay. Q Jr. <laughs> you really thought this through. I feel like I'm forgetting someone. The doctor. Mm-hmm. I think I think that's it. I think I'll cap it there. Yeah, that's a good mm-hmm. li- it's a good lineup. I know there it's a good lineup. There really were See, a now, lot of See, now, though, solid I'm going to put characters. them in the octagon. <laughs> no, it's a, no, it's a cage match between Now whoever them. wins is my favorite. Go. There can be only one. <laughs> <There's>... <laughs> and so, um, Kirsten, what about yourself? Can you name just one? No, I really can't. I mean, it's. It, I might have been able to before, mm-hmm. but... Uh, you know, it's just hard now because yeah. they're all yeah. like my children. They're yeah. like real people in men. Yeah. I know that's strange, nope. but it's, it's really, really hard. Perfectly understandable. Oh, my yeah. gosh. But you know what? One thing I find really interesting, I'm just going to throw this out there. Um, when we were first developing Eternal Tide, which I know we're not talking about the books yet, but um, Q Jr. is featured in the Eternal Tide quite heavily. Yes. And um, I knew from the very beginning of that process that I needed him desperately to do exactly what he did in that book. Mm-hmm. And my editors were very resistant to the notion of using him at all. And the reason was because apparently at some point they had done a poll of everybody's least favorite Star Trek characters of all time. <gasps> and he was at the top of that list. Oh my God. I have to fight everyone. Right? Right? Uh, they can so... all get in the octagon with me and then see how they feel. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my and, you know, I never... I certainly didn't dislike the character that strongly. I mean, I just, I didn't have terribly strong feelings about him one way or the other, but I absolutely needed him to make the story work. Mm-hmm. He so, and Echeb are my bro TP. Well, it's really, really, I, I think, I, I mean, I'm not, when you get to that particular story, then I think you're going to be kind of happy <laughs> um, for a minute and then you're going to call me and we'll talk. Um, but, like, I just um, want him and Echeb to be like best friends forever. Mm-hmm. Dream scenario. Okay. Yeah. I'm kind of worried is. now, though. Yeah. <laughs> Just from your reaction to me saying that, I'm like but, a little concerned. But, but, but the reality is, you know, I mean, it was funny. What was funny to me is that the editors took that as a sign that we shouldn't use the character, whereas I simply took it as a challenge, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, people think they don't like him, but I can fix that. So, you know. Well, well you're, you, you with you're... with dribbles. Yeah, I was just going to say, you're talking to the guy who made Niels Barris the, yeah. the main character yeah. of the novel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, It can be done. You know, the challenge is fun. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, you come at it from a different point of view. There's something to be said for taking that approach. So, The episode where Tom and Bellana gets get left, get ditched in their spaces. They're hanging out in the... Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was her birthday? I think it was her, oh. or no, it was her. And when it was, well, it was, or was it the, that was tied in with the Klingon Honor Day or something? Yeah, Honor Day Yeah, like that just, called. it was just, it, it was, was like, like bizarrely um, comforting to me. It was, uh. Like the first time I watched it, like I remember so clearly the first time I watched that episode. And was I was like in George bed, Clooney and, I was in uh, bed watching it on my iPod. Sandra Bullock. iPad. And what? <laughs> It was like George Clooney and Sandra Bullock. It was like gravity. Oh. Uh, <laughs> I, was, in I was in bed watching it on my iPad and I was like, Oh man, that'd be so cool. Just be like floating there. Like I didn't, I didn't even care that they were gonna die. I was like, ooh, <laughs> yeah. just floating in space with nothing. I was like, that'd be so sick. Just looking at the planets, and then I fell asleep thinking about just floating in space. 
And it was great. And I have to point out, she said she was in bed watching it on, on her pad. Mm-hmm. Because by the time Ella got into Star Trek, pads are real. Yeah, right. I <laughs> had a literal pad. It was yep. great. Oh. I like just constantly feel like I'm in Star Trek in the first place. Mm-hmm. I'm still like, I got an iPhone like this year. And I still, like, I know, like, I know what they can do. I know exactly. Like, there's no surprises to me. But every once in a while, I'm just like, ooh. <laughs> like, oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's It still occasionally feels like the future. Like you're somehow in the future. Yeah. And, you know, and it's certainly, it's more prominent for people my age because our memories go back so much further to when there was nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, but... Even though I'm super geeky and and am on my computer and iPads and everything all the time, there are still moments where it's just like, oh my gosh, yep. I, I can't even believe. Well, here we go. Star Trek uh, invention, the Universal Translator. Now Google Translate. Yep. Holy man, and it's so good. I couldn't believe it. I I I, I turned on on my iPad a couple of weeks ago, and I was looking at the languages it had. And I was surprised to see that there is a lot more languages in the app than I would have expected. And I saw that Finnish was one of them. My uh, grandmother was Finnish. And mm-hmm. when I was a kid, she taught me some phrases here and there in Finnish. So I turned on Google Translate, set it on Finnish, dredged up one of those phrases from 40 plus years ago. Which was? Which was... Mina Halloween Lassin Maitoa. Horrible Finnish accent. If there's any Finnish speakers out in the audience, I apologize for my horrible accent. But Google translated it word for word perfectly. To? To, may I have a glass of milk, please? (laughs) That's cool. And I was stunned. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it is amazing how those things from the shows have become real as the shows have come along do we want to do a little bit of a a wrap-up sort of look back on the show now come back to that idea of it's been 20 years kirsten how do you think the show has aged when you go back and look at it now i see it very much as a product of its time it premiered in january 95 there's an optimism to it there's a sense of perseverance that the characters, there's just that, that feeling that everything's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think it's worth thinking about, you know, pre-9-11, post-9-11. To me, it's very much a, a product of that period of the 90s where, you know, economy's going well, everything is going well, um, everybody knows who they are and what they're about, and mm-hmm. off we go. Whereas since then, so much of science fiction has turned toward um, the darker, more dystopian yep. themes and ideas. And so I think in a lot of ways, I'm glad Voyager missed that because mm. I think mm-hmm. I think those notions run so counter to the idea of um, the heart of the show and, and the premise of the show that we're going to overcome everything and get home in a yep. reasonable period of time. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I don't think Voyager could have happened now. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I think that's a very interesting point. Uh, there is a, a grimness, a bleakness to a lot of... Uh, sci-fi in general and and star trek in particular at this point uh mm-hmm. certainly uh enterprise was mm-hmm. 
hugely influenced uh, by the post 9-11 world. Uh, I think that the JJ films uh, also uh, yep. are th that that uh, more grim outlook on the I mean, world like is there. Literally into darkness. Into darkness is you know, yeah very dark and bleak. Yeah. Uh, Even the promo poster. So it'll be interesting to see. Looking forward now to the new Star Trek series, will it be grim? Will they lighten up a little bit? Now, Ella, since you are much younger, you, you don't have quite the same perspective to look back on, on a show, but when you go and watch it now, you were recently doing some, uh, some binging. Yeah. What, what, how did it feel to return to it after, after a number of years from when you first watched it? Good. So you, you still it, yeah, dug it? it was, to... Yeah, it was nice. I, was just, I spend a lot of time when I'm rewatching just like laughing at all the characters like, even when something really serious is happening, I'm just like, ha, ha, I remember when that happened. Like, <laughs> I don't know. It was nice. I Yeah, I haven't watched it in a long, long time. I did, I mean, when you've been binging, occasionally, if I'll come into the room, I'll watch for a little bit. And usually I'm struck by how how much I like it, how much I just want to sit back down and, and it watch really it. yeah it really captured me usually especially when i'm re-watching i'll be doing something else while i'm watching and this time when i was re-watching voyager it was always just me like leaning over my laptop like just very focused well one thing that happened because of the delta quadrant angle is that there weren't a lot of other recurring characters so it did keep you really focused on the main cast yeah but just it's like ability because like the first time i watched it i was doing different except for when really important things were happening like the doctor professing his love um i was doing other stuff mm -hmm. i was playing the sims i was doing chores i was whatever um and when i went back to rewatch i was just very like oh like i forgot how good this show is it really yeah, you know, and I think that it's, I mean, all the shows had their problems, uh, but there does seem to be this strange contingent of particularly strong-feeling fans that did not like Voyager, um, and I just never quite understood the, the vehemence <laughs> with which some people rejected Voyager. Uh, I I've, think it's because... Voyager, um, I think it's because the premise was so strong. You know, I think that fans felt betrayed by the producers not honoring the complexity of the situation they had set before those characters. Hmm. When, you know, every week the ship is shiny and new, when we can lose a million shuttles and nobody bats an eye, when there are no or very few consequences to any of the actions that we take, it becomes harder to take it seriously. Mm -hmm. And yet the premise sort of demanded that you take it seriously. I mean, by all rights, these guys should have died long before they made it home. Yeah, actually, so, you, you point out the, the, the chief... <laughs> it, it, they have a premise that is inherently serial in nature, mm -hmm. and yet... And they refuse to serialize it. There was, yeah, a, a lot of these independent episodes that... Yeah. I mean, in some ways, it, you know, it's interesting because it makes my job easier now 
in that there are, or especially as I was initially coming to Voyager writing the novels, there are so many little things you need to go back and sort of tweak. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to, it's not like huge fixes. You don't need to like, you know, you don't have to spend that much time on it, but there are just certain things that you kind of have to go back and somehow weave that stuff a little bit tighter. <laughs> yeah. You know? Kirsten, you wrote a uh, you wrote a few titles before you inherited the line. Mm-hmm. Do you want to tell us a little bit about how you came to get on the Voyager train there at the beginning? The Voyager train actually really started for me back in season four of the series. It was literally like three or four episodes into Voyager where I actually came up with an idea for an episode. And that had never happened to me before watching a television show. Could have had something to do with those long nights by myself. I'm not 100% (laughs) sure. But essentially, um, you know, I came up with an idea and pretty quickly figured out that Star Trek, unlike a lot of other series, had this open submission policy. Mm -hmm. So it didn't matter that I'd never written anything before. It didn't matter that I didn't have an agent. I was able to get some pages from scripts from actors who had read for the show and figure out how to put it all together and actually submitted to spec screenplays to the producers Mm -hmm. early on. Um, not understanding that by that point in time, the real purpose of doing that was not so much to sell a story to the show because that didn't usually happen. It was usually just to get yourself into pitch to the producers. Mm-hmm. And it was much more likely you were going to sell ideas based on those kinds of pitches. So I had written my first couple of episodes. That's how I started writing, period. And um, then I moved on to other things because you could only submit two if you didn't have an agent and I didn't have one. Um, but by season four, there was an episode, one of those that's in contention for my worst, uh, least favorite of all time, that came on that literally made me so angry with the show <laughs> that I sat down and I wrote a really snotty letter to Jerry Taylor, who was still the executive producer at that time. That was her last year there. And I told her that I was supposed to be working for her. <laughs> and she called my bluff and said, great, come in and pitch. <laughs> and I was like, excellent. <laughs> so for the last four seasons of the show, I was constantly, at that point, I stopped being a fan and started being a student of the show. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, I think I had recorded most of them anyway, so, because there were no DVDs at that point. So I had gone back and rewatched and rewatched and, of course, watched several times everything that they were doing since then. And, um, you know, went in three or four times, usually to Brian Fuller, a couple times to Mike Taylor, and pitched episodes. And um, so I sort of cut my teeth as a writer on Voyager. And then the show ended without me ever having sold anything, although having made some nice connections and friendships with people. And I, you know, moved on to other things. And it was shortly after that, that Heather Jarman, who I had met um, online, I literally, you can count on one hand, the number of human beings I have first encountered online and then eventually met and formed some sort of friendship with. And Heather is one of the primary ones. Um, She got her, um, she got asked to write for Deep Space Nine by Marco. I should interject for people in the audience who may not know Marco Palmieri is a longtime editor at Simon & Schuster at their Star Trek line, and he's uh, just a fabulous guy that has uh, helped so many of us uh, get started on our, uh, on our writing careers. Yeah, truly one of the best and kindest people I have ever known. I mean, I just have not enough good things to say about him. Yep. Um, so that summer brought me out to shore leave where I met Marco for the first time. Um, she had given me the contact information for the person who was doing the Voyager books back then. She and I got in touch. I sent her a bunch of the things that I had developed as pitches for the show when it was on the air within like 24 hours, we were talking and like, I thought I was going to be writing my first Voyager book. 
But then a few months after that, she left uh, Simon & Schuster and I had no idea what was going on. So I ended up coming to Shirley for the first time, meeting Marco, telling him, you know, my story and what was going on. And he ended up asking for some writing samples. And the next call I got was a few months later. He called me up and he's like, well, we're doing this um, anthology for Voyager's 10th anniversary, which was Distant Shores. Yep. And do you want to write a short story for that? And I was like, yeah, sure. Absolutely. That sounds great. And then, you know, I put the phone down and, you know, screamed and called my husband. I was like, wait, wait, <laughs> and then a couple hours later, Marco called back and I was like, oh God, he's taking it back already. <laughs> and instead he was calling to say that he had just spent the last three hours on the phone with Heather and that he and Heather were going to be sort of coordinating also this trilogy that they were going to release for the anniversary. Um, and did I want to write the second book in the trilogy as well? And I was like, um, yeah. And why couldn't that have been the first phone call? But okay. <laughs> so, so that November day of 10 years ago now, I guess, is sort of how it all started. So the first thing I ever ended up writing, the first one I actually wrote was Isabeau's Shirt, which was the short story that appeared in Distant Shores. Mm -hmm. And then I set to work on the novel Fusion, which was the second book in the String Theory trilogy. The first one was Jeff Lang's Cohesion, and then I had Fusion, and Heather had Evolution. Um, so that was sort of my jumping into the deep end of writing novels and, you know, pocketbooks and all of that kind of stuff. And then um, immediately after that, it was pretty clear. I had been talking to Marco, but it was pretty clear that they weren't quite sure yet where Voyager was going next. They knew they were going to pick up the story after the first four books that Christie had written and that had already been released, but they weren't quite sure how that was all going to happen. So I ended up, Marco then referred me to the folks at Simon & Schuster who were doing Alias. And I ended up writing a book for them for Alias. And then they were also doing Buffy. So I ended up writing a book for them for Buffy. And it was shortly after that was done that Marco sort of got back on the phone with me and was like, okay, what are our notions? And so I started to come up with, you know, I started to, basically the, the first task was to sit down and look at everything that had happened to the Voyager characters between the end of Spirit Walk and leading up to where we were going to be, which was the beginning of Destiny. And, um, realizing that a bunch of authors had used those characters in different ways. So I sort of had this big, huge timeline in front of me where, you know, two box here at this point, and then Janeway did this and appeared here. And then, oh, the doctor's doing this and seven did that. And, you know, it was all like, oh my Jesus. But, um, you know, I, I spent a lot of time essentially pulling all that stuff together and then incorporating everything that was going to happen with destiny into finally putting together the book that became full circle. And that was, you know, 2008, 2009. So yeah, that came out in 2009. Yep. So that's how all that happened. And <laughs> I like the idea that the novels have moved forward past the, the uh, series finales. But I would also think <laughs> that particularly in your case, that it must have been, I mean, you've already uh, alluded to it. It was pretty overwhelming because post-finale stuff had already happened. There was a lot of... Uh, balls in the air for you to mm -hmm. uh to jump in mm -hmm. and catch mm -hmm. then as you moved into full circle your books have been they're they're, they're epic books they're huge <laughs> they're huge books you've got a whole yeah. fleet going on yeah do you ever just think wow i wish i could just go back and write a little book that's set in the third season that <laughs> 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 i wouldn't have to try to remember 400 different <laughs> plot elements that are going on or do you instead just 
are, are you just loving digging into this world and really making it your own? Because, you know, you've moved far past what other people had put in motion now, and you are, are really out there on your own. Are, are, you, are you loving it? <laughs> yeah, actually, I am. I, I mean, yeah, I'm unreservedly. I, at this point in time, I think I would feel like my hands were tied if I were trying to go back and write within the series again, mm -hmm. um, largely because a lot of the things that I would have wanted to address, you know, at, at any point in time, um, I have now found different ways to address mm -hmm. in terms of character growth and moving people forward. So to, to step back from that and go back in time would just be like, it would be like writing a whole different version of these people. Yeah. Um, that in many ways is much less interesting to me than the people that they are now. Yep. Um, Kim, Kim would still be like the Radar O'Reilly mm -hmm, of Voyager. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of the um, person perfect he's... comparison. <laughs> yeah. Instead yeah. of the person he's grown into. Yeah. Um, and, you know, all of them going ahead and allowing Janeway to die and forcing every single individual in that crew to deal personally with taking that next step forward. It just it, it, it opened up everybody in ways that we never could have done without that happening. And so to try to remember who they were and what they were about back then, just, uh, it, it honestly doesn't interest me. I mean, it was really exciting when it came to like, I remember when Heather and I were first talking about what would become the string theory trilogy. I mean, we had a laundry list of stuff that we wanted to go back to. And, you know, the, the whole idea of who were the Nacine and what was that all about was the thing that ultimately floated to the top and became like, well, let's let's just start at the beginning, I guess, <laughs> <laughs> what we want to look at. Yeah. But like you said, now we're so far past all of that. Uh, yeah, no, I, I definitely love it. It's yes, it's exhausting. I don't have the to me, the, the thing of all the different storylines that that we have going at times and all the different characters involved now doesn't feel like a chore to me. It feels like I have this incredibly rich toolbox mm -hmm. and I just sort of get to go, oh, who do I want to play with today? And what do I, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yep. so, um, and that's something that I also think the novel series absolutely needed. You couldn't do this on a television show, right? Oh, yeah. you just don't have the budget or the time. But, but it's so well suited to this particular way of telling stories um, because, you know, if people do have a problem six months or eight months later, when they're trying to read the new book and remember who these people were, just go back and grab the other book. I mean, you know, it's right there. You can, you know, it's not like it's, or Google it because, because it's also all on memory beta. It's, it's very challenging because every time I do something, that means the next time I'm looking to do something else. And, yeah. um, and so that's, that's difficult, but you know, I always also end up surprising myself. I mean, I'm in the process right now of plotting two books that come after the one that's going to come out in February, which is pocket full of lies. And, um, you know, I, the, the first story is sort of, a um, it's, it's kind of taking a step back and letting everybody breathe for a few minutes. Cause mm -hmm. I've, I've really made things tough on folks this last <laughs> four or five weeks. And it's, <laughs> yeah, it's been a bit of a ride. Atonement is out now. And, and that wrapped up a trilogy that mm -hmm. was a, uh, huge story. Mm -hmm. Just arcs all over the place. Delta mm -hmm. Quadrant, mm -hmm. Alpha, Alpha Quadrant, Quadrant, all just everywhere. Dogs and cats living together. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, Pocket Full of Lies, which, <laughs> which is... Which you're like uh, the only person on the planet who has read, apart from my editors. 
I, uh, yes, I've uh, had the privilege of doing the uh, copy edit on that, so I've read that. And, you know, so that's a, 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 a big, complicated story that uh, that is going to blow people's minds. The idea of taking a step back and taking yeah. a breath is sort of like, yeah, Sounds maybe good. we need to do that. So, so I've allowed myself a story in which to do that. And then, um, and then right now I'm crafting the next story that comes after that. Cause I'm doing the two outlines back to back before I actually start on the manuscripts. And they're not really a duology, although there are uh, characters and ideas in, introduced in the first one that are going to be fulfilled more in the second one. Again, it's just gotten so, huh, not complicated in terms of the number of people involved, but in terms of the degree of difficulty, in terms of the situation that they're in and um, the issues that the, that the characters I'm focusing on in this book are going to deal with. Uh, and it's really, I mean, I'm just, I'm getting that feeling again of mm -hmm. how rich this, this, these people are and how far I can go with them. And that's yeah. just thrilling <laughs> and scary, but you know, it's yes. exciting. Does anyone have any final comments? I'm just really happy that a place exists where we can keep telling these stories because I think that, um, you know, when you talk about the relevance of the time period in which these things are set mm -hmm. Voyager exists in a very particular period of time and has a, has a feel and a tone and stuff that are very much reflective of that. By the same token, I think the books that we're writing now do too. Yeah. I don't think you could have had these stories back then either. No. And so I feel like it's, it's really amazing to be able to spend this much time seeing these characters through um, the lens of the, the stuff that we're all experiencing now. Um, and, and, and it's amazing to think there's really no end in sight. I mean, you know, as long as they want to keep publishing these stories, we've got plenty of material, you know, and that's, yes, that's, that's part of what makes Star Trek so amazing, you know? Exactly. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. It was a ton of fun. <laughs> You're welcome. That's all the time we have for this episode. Tune in next time for episode 35, The Cornetto Trilogy, the Simon Pegg movies Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, and The World's End. This is our first special Grup edition when we have a family-friendly discussion of movies that might not be for the whole family. Remember that Generations Geek is a part of the Chronic Rift Network, which broadcasts from a starship still lost in the Delta Quadrant. Please give their other fine podcasts a listen at chronicrift.com. Thanks for listening, and come, come back, back next, next time. No geeks were harmed in the making of this podcast. Ooh, shiny. <laughs>